0: Chapter 24, Can't Win for Losing. When Arlene dialed the number, she gave Jory her here-we-go look. A landlord, number 90, had left her a voicemail saying to give him a call. The message was from the landlord's son, actually, who had been the one to show Arlene the unit. He was in his early 20s with a backwards cap and a braided ponytail. Call me Panna, he said. Arlene remembered living in his father's building in 2003 in a two-bedroom unit that back then rented for $535. Now the same unit went for $625. So when Arlene applied this time, it was for a $525 one-bedroom unit. What a difference six years could make. The phone rang and Arlene thought about what she had told Panna. She had lied about her income, saying she received $250 a month in child support, but had been straight about her evictions. Mainly, she had begged him. She told him she'd take the unit before looking at it. She didn't much consider the neighborhood or the condition of the place. Whatever I get, whatever I get, she figured. She had said, I'm in a shelter, please. Hannah answered, yeah, so we checked you out. Everything was what you said it was. So we're going to work with you. Arlene jumped up and down and let out a muffled yes. But you know, there is no room for error here. I know. You're on Honor fixed income. So you need to pay your rent and not get into trouble. Arlene thanked Panna. Getting off the phone, she thanked Jesus. She smiled. When she smiled, she looked like a different person. The press had loosened its grip. From landlords, she had heard 89 no's, but one yes. Jory accepted his mother's high five. He and his brother would have to switch schools. Jory didn't care. He switched schools all the time. Between seventh and eighth grades, he had attended five different schools. When he went at all, at the domestic violence shelter alone. Jory had racked up seventeen consecutive absences. Arlene saw school as a higher order need, something to worry about after she found a house. Plus, Jory was a big help. He would bound down the street and memorize numbers off rent signs and watch Jafaris when Arlene left with her house notepad. He was a good he was good for a laugh, too. When things looked bleak, he would try to make his mama smile by freestyling badly as the city rolled past their bus window. I, 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 looking for me a house to move in. That was my old school. That's my old block. That's my old gas station. We looking for a house. If Jory worried about finding a home, he never showed it. Jafaris cried when they left the shelter, holding on to the remote control car and stuffed Elmo and social worker. A social worker had given him as a parting gift. I can't look, he said as the car pulled away. Arlene rubbed her boy's head and told him he would he should be happy leaving the shelter. Jafaris didn't understand why. It was quiet, warm, and there were toys there. Their new apartment building was at the busy intersection of Tetonia and Silver Spring, in a more industrial part of the north side. Arlene climbed the steps to the third-floor apartment while Jory and Jafaris took a giggling ride in the creaking elevator. Inside, the walls were freshly painted, and the gray carpet was thick and clean. There was an air conditioning unit and fixtures on every light. There was a small kitchen with light wood cupboards, each one of which had a handle. The hot water worked. Arlene took her time inspecting the place but couldn't find anything wrong. She opened a window and looked out over the cars driving by and our steel and heating's distribution center across the street. She felt good but tired. Once all the trash bags of clothes and boxes of canned food were moved in, Arlene sat on the floor. She found a soft bag and leaned back on it. She felt at peace, at home. It had been two months since her eviction hearing with Sharina. Jory sat down beside Arlene and pitched his head into her shoulder. Jafaris followed, lying on Arlene's leg, legs and resting his head on her belly. They stayed like that for a long time. After a few quiet days, Arlene learned that Terence, everyone just called him T, was dead. T was one of the only people Arlene still kept in touch with on Larry's side of the family. His cousin, P.A., whom Arlene also loved, had shot him. During an argument, T had hit P.A. over the head with an axe handle, and P.A. went to get his gun. Before he returned, he called T's mother, saying that he was going to kill her son. Then he did. T's death interrupted Arlene's life in in the usual way. She wept for him and reminisced with old friends and arranged for Jafaris to stay over at his foster mother's home during the funeral. He was too young to go, Arlene thought. Some people were talking about going to Ponderosa Steakhouse after the funeral. Those who couldn't afford it donated plasma so they could have a place at the table. When Arlene and Jory visited T Street Memorial near Font du Lac Avenue on the northwest side, she straightened the flowers and stuffed animals. It was a handsome memorial adorned with large cream ribbon, poems, silk roses, and several bouquets of white and yellow daisies, carnations, and Elstromeria type of flower, I guess. Arlene walked to T's house and stood on the steps, walked back to the memorial, then walked to the steps again. Time is going fast, ain't it? Jory said. I bet when we get down to the funeral, time will be going slow. On the morning of the funeral, Arlene put on dark jeans, a rocaware t-shirt and a blue hoodie and she and Jory descended the stairs on the way out. They met Panna on his way up. I need to talk with you, he said. About two nights ago, Arlene's mind raced. That was when she had called 911 because Jafaris was having an asthma attack. This is a nuisance building, Panna said. We can't have police coming up in here. Just the fire department and ambulance came, Arlene said. Police don't come for an asthma attack. Still, that wasn't the only issue. A neighbor had complained that one of Arlene's friends had knocked on the door and asked for weed. Trisha. She was babysitting the boys at the time. And Jafaris had been caught dropping something out of their 30 story window. If things don't get better, we're going to ask you to go. Outside on her way to New Pitt's Mortuary, Arlene shook her head. If it ain't one thing, it's another, she said. Besides trying to stay in Panna's good graces, Arlene was having a problem with her food stamps. She had submitted the necessary change of address form, but there was some holdup. Then there was the problem of getting everything out of storage. She needed to find a way to move her things fast, or come the first of the month, she would fall behind on payments. Either that or fall behind in rent. And now T was gone, and in a way, so was PA. Poverty could pile on. Living it often meant steering through gnarled thickets of interconnected misfortunes and trying not to go crazy. There were moments of calm, but life on balance was facing one crisis after another. At least Arlene had a home, a floor of her own, to sleep on. Arlene hesitated in front of the door at Pitts. Built in the 1930s, the funeral home on West Capitol Drive was a north side institution. Fashioned in the French Revival style, the Lannan stone building was adorned with an octagonal stair tower, thin, elegant windows, a deep maroon entrance canopy stretching across the sidewalk, and steep roof lines with a towering chimney. Jory drew up next to his mother, and they walked together. The sanctuary was packed. Teenagers and children huddled together wearing personalized shirts with T's face or the face of someone else who had been cut down young. Grandmothers and grandfathers were there in cream and brown suits with matching felt hats. Big C, T's brother, was up front in a crisp blue t-shirt with matching bandana and sunglasses. Uncle Link showed up with a half-finished cigarette behind his ear. A towering man walked down the aisle slowly as his wife leaned her face on his back and wept. Arlene took a seat at the rear, reflecting her status in the family. T looked good, dressed in long-sleeved black T-shirts and a new Oakland Raiders cap. He had almost made 40. The preacher looked down on him. It seems like every time I come over here, I see someone who looks at me, lying in a casket, gone too young, he said. Shaking his head above a fat Windsor knot. Then he boomed, raspy and impassioned. What has happened to the love amongst us? What has happened to the concern? Can't nobody help us but us? Go on. That's right. That was my baby. After it was over, Arlene joined Uncle Link and a few others outside. Someone handed her a can of old English malt liquor and she poured it out for tea, making pretty amber circles circles in the snow. At the repast, the family ate fried chicken on bread, greens and mac and cheese in the basement of the Wisconsin African-American Women's Center on 13th and Volier. Through it all, Arlene was embraced and kissed and welcomed. She felt held by her people. They weren't much help if you needed a place to stay or money to keep the heat on, but they knew how to throw a funeral. The next day, no one was calling, and Arlene got back to making her apartment a home. She enrolled the boys in new schools, she got her stuff out of storage and hung pictures on the wall. A neighbor gave her a couch. Arlene's old apartment on 13th Street was, still, was usually messy because cleaning didn't do much good. with What with its cracked windows, ravaged carpet, and broken bathroom. But Panna's father kept a nice place. It could look respectable if Arlene kept it nice. She did. Over the sink, she wrote a little note to Jory. If you don't clean up after yourself, we're going to have problems. On the counter, she set out a candle for St. Jude, patron saint of difficult cases. When people saw Arlene's apartment, they would say, your house is so pretty. Some even asked if they could move in. Arlene would feel proud and say no. Jory tried to adjust to his new school. He was technically in eighth grade, but so far behind that he might as well have been in seventh. It was frustrating. And on top of that, T's death had unsettled him. It had come out that when PA called T's mother, He had called from Larry's phone. The police questioned Larry, but released him. It Still twisted Jory up inside. Why was his daddy with PA that night? Exactly two weeks after the funeral, the teacher snapped at Jory and he snapped back. He kicked the teacher in the shin and ran home. The police followed him there, the teacher having called them. When Panna heard about it, he made Arlene a deal. If she left by Sunday, he'd return her rent and security deposit. If she didn't, he would keep her money and evict her. Children didn't shield families from eviction. They exposed them to it. Arlene took the deal and Panna was nice enough to help her move. She pulled her dishes out of the clean cupboards and took her decorations off the walls when Arlene had finished stuffing everything into trash bags and recycled boxes. Panna loaded his truck and drove Arlene's things right back to storage. Arlene had lost the pretty house and felt miserable about it. Why, Why it's like I got a curse on me, she wondered. I can't win for losing, no matter how hard I try. Arlene called Trisha and told her how angry the landlord was when he found out she had been going door-to-door asking for a joint. It really was the police visit that did her in, but years of hardship had taught Arlene how to ask for help. And one particularly effective method involved addressing a person's guilt, framing things so that someone looked like a real bastard if he or she turned you down. The least you can do is help me if you're the one that got me put out. Trisha told Arlene to come on over. There was a new street memorial on 13th Street. Jafaris noticed it. Someone got shot there, he said in his six-year-old voice. When they arrived at the old address, the boys ran up to Trisha's apartment to see Little. But Little was dead. A car had ground him into the pavement. When Trisha told Jory, he tried to keep himself from crying. He paced around Trisha's apartment and sleeve attacked the snot sliding from his nose. He found a foam mannequin's head. There was always random stuff like that lying around Trisha's place. Jory knelt over the head and turned it face up. He hit the face with a closed fist. He kept hitting it. Soon he was grunting and his punches were faster and harder and louder until Arlene and Trisha screamed at him to stop. Trisha didn't hide the fact that she had begun turning tricks. She couldn't even if she wanted to. Men would just show up and Trisha would take them into her bedroom, telling Arlene, Look, I'm about to get us some cigs. Trisha would emerge later with eight or ten dollars. Once, Jory walked in to find a man in bed with Trisha, his pants on the floor next to them, and her lipstick smeared. In crowded houses, there were no separate spaces, and children quickly learned the ways of adults. Trisha kept at it even after her new boyfriend moved in. Arlene sensed that he encouraged her to. She also figured it was the boyfriend who told Trisha to raise Arlene's monthly rent to $150 from 60 The man went by a string of nicknames. Trisha called him Sonny. He was a 30-year-old man who had just served five years for selling drugs. Skinny with a smooth walk. He bragged about having nine children by five different women and joked about taking a spatula to Trisha. When Trisha got money from Johns or her payee, Sonny would take it. If Trisha called after Sonny on the street, he would ignore her and later hiss, Don't call me, babe, in public. Trisha would ball up under the covers with her clothes on or sit on a windowsill and light a cigarette, its smoke coming alive in the breeze like a raging spirit that had only seconds to live. Sonny's parents and one of his sisters moved in soon after Arlene did. Trisha's small one-bedroom apartment, which was in bad shape to begin with, began to buckle under the weight of eight people. The toilet broke and the kitchen sink started leaking. The leak got so bad that the floor filled with water that would ripple when Jory stepped in it. He spread old clothes on the ground to sop it up. It looks like slums, Arlene said. Kitchen all nasty, floor all nasty, bathroom. She thought about what to do next. What's beyond this? What's to come? It can't get no worse, Then a Child Protective Service caseworker showed up asking for Miss Bell. It was not Arlene's usual caseworker, but one she'd never met before. She knew Arlene was living there. Sharina didn't even know that. And she knew about the toilet and sink. The caseworker opened the refrigerator and grimaced. Arlene pointed out that it was the end of the month. She had gone shopping, but there were eight mouths to feed. The CPS worker said she'd be back. Arlene became nauseous with anxiety and secretly suspected Trisha had reported her. She needed to escape somehow. So she called JP, her dependable cousin, picked her up and rolled her a blunt. It helped. So he rolled another. JP always tries to make me forget about my stresses, Arlene said the next day. Finally, spring had come to the city. The snow had melted, leaving behind wet streets edged in soggy garbage. On the same day, the whole ghetto realized there was no longer a need to brace and tighten when stepping outside. People overreacted without regret. Boys went shirtless, and girls put lotion and sun on their legs before it was actually hot. Chairs and laughter returned to porches. Children found their jump ropes. Arlene and her boys had spent the past several days alone in Trisha's apartment. She relished the peace and quiet. Trisha and Sonny and Sonny's people had disappeared. Marlene didn't give it any thought, figuring they were visiting kin or friends. But on May 1st, movers stormed Trisha's apartment. They came with gloved hands, ready to work, but ended up looking at each other, bewildered, trying to figure out what they should pack and what they should trash. Belinda, Trisha's payee, had, um, contracted the men. She would later come to check on their progress, pulling up in a new Ford Expedition XLT, temporary license plates from the dealership. Chris had been released and came by the apartment looking for Tricia. Belinda didn't think her client was safe on 13th Street anymore. Arlene stared out the front window. This is too much for me, she mumbled. She had stayed with Tricia for a month and a half. Jafar's came home from school with braids on one side of his head. He watched the movers lugging out mattresses and dressers and showing handfuls of clothes shoving handfuls of clothes into black trash bags to this scene he had no reaction he did not cry or ask a question or run to check on a special possession he simply turned around and went outside they stayed a while with arlene's sister who wanted 200 dollars a month even though arlene and the boys didn't have their own room during that time arlene lost everything she had in storage her glass dining table the armoire and bedroom dresser she had acquired at 13th Street, her air conditioning units. She had given Boozy the money to go pay it, but he lost or stole it. Then Arlene's welfare case was closed because she missed three appointments. The letters had once again been mailed to an address she was evicted from. It won't stop for nothing, she said. Arlene eventually found another rundown apartment on 34th and Clark by the Master Lock Factory. Maybe this will be the end of it, she told herself. Arlene found enough stability to start looking for jobs. But not long after an interview at Arby's, she and her boys were robbed. Two men ran into her apartment and stuck a pistol in Jory's face. Arlene's caseworker told her the place was no longer safe, causing Arlene to flee once again to a shelter. Rents continued to rise. Arlene's next apartment took $600 of her 628 monthly paycheck. It was only a matter of time before her lights were shut off. When that finally happened, Jory went to live with Larry and child protective services placed Jafaris with Arlene's sister. Arlene began to unravel. Just my soul is messed up. She said, sometimes I find my body trembling or shaking. I'm tired, but I can't sleep. I'm fitting to have a nervous breakdown. My body is trying to shut down. Arlene stood back up. She borrowed money from her aunt, Merva, to get her lights back on, and her boys came back. She took another apartment on Tamarack Street, near Tabernacle Community Baptist Church. The apartment had no stove or refrigerator, but they boiled hot dogs in a crock pot or went to St. Ben's to eat beef stroganoff with the winos. Sometimes Arlene would head out to a food pantry and Jofaris would ask, will you get me some cakes, mama? Arlene would smile and say, you know, I'll try if they have them. Jory had been thinking about his future. He wanted to become a, a carpenter so he could build Arlene a house. People be not thinking that I can do this, but you watch, he said. Arlene smiled at Jory. I wish my life were different, she said. I wish that when I be an old lady, I can sit back and look at my kids, and they be grown, and they, you know, become something, something more than me, and we'll all be together and laughing. We'd be remembering stuff like this, and we'd be laughing at it.